January 2015 was the first show, and it was just all we wanted was just to, um, you know, get some free beers and party with our friends, and it turned out to be, like, out the door, wine, completely packed, best night of my life, just in, like, a 100-person capacity venue, totally for free. 2017, we were like, dude, we did 40 shows this year. I can't believe we did that. That's wild. We're going to do like over 800 shows this year. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Sagan Experience, your favorite musicians, favorite musicians, favorite podcast. Today, I am joined by Alex Bedanes. Alex is an incredible musician, honestly, probably like the best, most talented guitarist I know. He is a Berklee School of Music alum, uh, also worked for Cobalt Music. He's been in several bands, including one with me in high school. He is really one of my very good friends, uh, now also the co-founder and co-CEO of Burwood Media with his best friend Ethan Maccabee, who is also here on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Um, Alex, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, and congrats so far on doing all the episodes. And yeah, I'm pumped. Yeah, thanks, man. Stoked to have you on. Um, I'm gonna just dive right in and uh, ask you about you know your music experience, especially as it relates to playing guitar. What mm-hmm. What is the yeah. very first song you remember learning on the guitar? With guitar, like I was always so interested in music and. Um, I think I played like sax for a while, recorder, but my dad got um, a a Fender Squire for his birthday, like in the 90s or something like that. And it just sat around. He never played it for like years and years. And I was so interested in it. And then at one point, our, our friend Kyle was over at my house for a little bit. And it was just kind of lying around. And he was like, dude, look at this. And he was playing Smells Like Teen Spirit. He was like, do, 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 do. I was like, oh, my God. And then, like, he kind of taught me how to play it. So Kyle really was, like, almost a catalyst for, like, my life going in a certain direction. And then, like, I just started to really, like, get into it and, like, figuring out how to play stuff and learning. And it was just, like, yeah, it was amazing. But, yeah, the first song was Smells Like Teen Spirit. So around that time, uh, when you first started, like, you know, learning and kind of, you know, getting better incrementally and gaining that confidence, what music were you listening to, like, around that time that really kind of influenced, you know, what you played? Yeah, it was definitely, like, Blink-182, Green Day, like, Green Day is really easy to learn. I think, like, Brain Stew was one of the first, like, jams that, like, Kyle and I did. And then, and then, you know, like, all right, you found glory, sticks and stones. Like, okay. Like there was one, like there was one year, like maybe like when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I came back and Kyle was like, all right, uh, my friends over you, like, let's play it. Okay. Like, how can you play the din? I was like working so hard to get that. And then, you know, it, it eventually evolved into like emo basically. So, so a lot of it was like kind of the the yeah early two thousands like emo like pop punk like 
kind of rocks yeah. showing up primarily, right? Yeah. Maybe in like the early, early years, there was definitely some Lincoln Park and Limp Bizkit. Like I learned how to play like some of the Limp Bizkit riffs. I learned how to play some of like, like maybe it was like in the end or some of those like were kind of my first. But then, you know, eventually you, you snuck in, you know, you get into the emo, like eighth grade, seventh, eighth grade, ninth grade. It, it, it's a natural evolution. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like a lot of those songs like Green Day, uh, you know, it's very power chord heavy, which is kind of a little, I think a little easier to play. It's just kind of like, you know, the two notes put together. So it probably allowed you to kind of quickly learn those songs and uh and yeah kind of build your roster of like songs that you could play huh exactly yeah that's what made it so fun because like it was all like once you like learn how to play a power chord like you play pretty much anything tell me tell me a little bit uh about then going and working kind of on the business end of the music industry because you uh you eventually went to cobalt music which is an awesome you know company uh, tell me like how you kind of got that job and what it was like, you know, working there. Yeah. Yeah. So like after the band dissolved, I was like 23 and I was, I kind of took some time off of school and then went back for a little bit. So it's kind of like around my last semester, I wasn't planning to like not be in a band that wasn't like kind of a plan. And so I basically was like, well, while I get the next band up and running, I want to at least, like, get my foot into the industry. Maybe I could, like, meet somebody that, like, could help the band out sort of thing. <laughs> that was kind of, like, my attitude. And and so I just, like, found an internship, not really, like, wanting, not really, you know, thinking about anywhere specific I would want to work for. But I just kind of found this internship, which was with Downtown Music Publishing, which is also, like, similar to Cobalt, a really big um, publisher um, who has like tons of clients, like John Lennon is kind of one of their clients. And um, at that point they were like a little bit smaller, but I, yeah, just started, I did a summer internship during my last uh, semester of college. And I started to get, you know, learn a little bit about that business, which I found interesting. Um, and then after that was over, I kind of just needed like a job. And obviously like I saw some of my peers like like you or, you know, Ethan getting other like regular jobs. And I was like, oh, that, you know, I was a bit like, okay, maybe it's time that I kind of go that course a little bit. Of course, while still like trying to get a band going. Um, and so then I felt like, all right, well, there is an opening at, at that time, it was Song Trust, which was like a company inside of downtown. And I ended up like applying since I interned there and got that job. And then I was like, all right, now I'm really going to like, I actually want to like excel in this job. And I started to learn like all about publishing and wanting to like kind of really consume. I read like a lot of books and it ended up really working out. I like got promoted pretty quickly. And then I ended up, yeah, moving over to Cobalt after like two years of working there. And uh, and how long were you at Cobalt for? And also, can you like, what's interesting about Cobalt is they have like a lot of different facets of their business where it's not kind of operated like a traditional, 
you know, record label and they have like AWOL as well. Can you just kind of describe like how they're structured and what makes them unique? Because I think it's like really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what it was like kind of working with like the artists there, like, you know, uh, Skrillex was on the label and it, well, a ton of like artists, but tell me about uh, that a little bit and the organization. Yeah. Yeah. So like the core business in which I was involved with was music publishing, which is the business of songwriters and song composition copyrights versus similar, not so similar to a record label, which is the business of recording artists and recording. And the label is like a lot more glamorous because it involves like music videos and like marketing release strategies. It's a lot more like more of like what people think about when they think about like working for a music company, whereas the publishing it's a little bit more administrative. It's like maybe the glamorous part of it is you sign writer clients who might not like be famous or well-known. They might've just like, yeah, I, I wrote this song for Justin Bieber and like, you ne- you've never heard of me. That could be a huge client for Cobalt making tons of money. If you have just like a share and, and then like pitching the song on behalf of their songwriter for other uh, to get recorded by artists um, or to get used in film, TV, advertising, commercials. So that's kind of an interesting aspect. But then there's another aspect that's like really complicated, but also kind of cool that I really got involved with is like the royalty collection and administering and operations of, you know, registering and collecting and doing all that kind of the accounting and all that. Um, so yeah, lots of different aspects of the business. And then they have like other divisions, one of which was like a label, which was AWOL, which they eventually sold to Sony. But that was another aspect. And then they had like a couple other things as well. Uh, Alex, could you explain like how royalties generally work? Cause you know, some songs have like, 10 writers, you know, and like two producers. And I've heard, you know, some of that is because honestly, purely of like some people even being in the room of the time of the recording where they maybe contributed to like, you know, one lyric or, uh, or, you know, something like minor, but how, how does like that royalty process like work typically, you know, for a song? Um, and like, how is it decided? Like who gets what percentage, you know, of the royalties? Um, yeah, it's, it's very complicated, but to simplify it, it's, um, the royalty, anytime this music is played or broadcasted or streamed, that could be from Spotify. That could be from YouTube. That could be listening to it on the radio that could be watching a live concert in person. That could be being at a restaurant and you hear music or being at an airport. It generates a royalty and there are different types of royalty. There's like the mechanical royalty. That's the royalty from the sale. There's the performance royalty, which is the performance of the song, meaning the broadcast, which is more radio. And then there's like the synchronization, which is when music is synced up with video and they're all collected in different ways. Um, some people have heard of ASCAP and BMI and CSAC, which that's the U.S. Um, company 
for companies that are um, collect performance royalties, mostly from radio, um, and they have all sort of licenses with different radio stations, as well as licenses with businesses like restaurants and airports. And then they also collect, there's a performance aspect of streaming, which ASCAP and BMI collect. And then just like streaming is also has a mechanical sales component to it, which is collected through a few different ways, but like Harry Fox is another kind almost similar to ASCAP and BMI. That's kind of the medium uh, broker in between that kind of manages and accounts and collects. And it, it all makes its way to Cobalt. That's kind of the one uh, source that has buckets in every, you know, sink of royalties and can collect it all into one place and then pay it through. But all along the way, a lot of people take bits for administering whatever it is from pass from the royalty passing its hands that sometimes by the time it makes it to the actual writer, <laughs> it can be pretty small. Um, and that's kind of something that Cobalt was trying to work on. It's like simplifying the process and removing the middlemen. Like they kind of made their own society for Europe, AMRA, which is kind of like basically removing some of those middlemen. And so there's more royalties for the writer. But it's super complicated. And that's why a writer needs to like hire someone like Cobalt to do all this for them. So, so by the time kind of the collection of royalties from these different like facets or organizations get to like Cobalt or, you know, the record label or whoever, um, do they then decide like how it's distributed up between, you know, the writers and the producers and the artists? Or is that decided by the writers, producers and the artists themselves? Typically, is it like an agreement with both? Like, how does it work when the money is collected and then how it's distributed to like kind of the appropriate parties. Yeah. It's really up to the writer, the writers, what the percentage splits are. Cobalt is kind of like just a third party that they're hiring to collect. Cobalt isn't an owner. They're an administrator. So if there's a dispute about splits, Cobalt just defers to, okay, you guys got to work it out yourself. We can't be the ones to like, we're not like your legal team that's asserting that you're that's acting on behalf of you as a writer sort of thing. Like it's up to you. Once you tell us what it is, we'll then go and collect. But it's really, and sometimes there've been like decade long disputes that go into legal battles. You know, of course you've seen like the blurred lines or like, just like even like, Oh, I was in the room. I deserve a share. I'm going to get a lawyer. I'm going to sue you because you, I'm deserving of this. And th and Cobalt tries to stay out of that as much as possible. Yeah, it's probably probably smart. Um, yeah, to, and yeah. If it's if it's a hip hop song, I've seen this multiple times. Like, okay, maybe the 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 the, the song has like two or three writers, but they sample something in in it, which that has like maybe four or five writers. And then, well, there's this other sample. Oh, but that sample is a sample of something else. And then it's like, you have like, like before you know it, you have like 40 plus writers all with like minute, like percentage decimal type of shares. And it becomes like a nightmare. It just becomes like 
basically, and, and the way it does is it's like, we can't pay this out until you guys figure this out. That's, there are different, there's kind of ways around it, but for the most part, it's like Cobalt sometimes just like holds this. And it's like, we don't know what to do with this. We, or in some cases, Cobalt says, don't even pay us. Ask cap. We don't want to take liability. Like, you guys just pulled it. We can't be paid because we don't know who to pay it. <laughs> and that's kind of an yeah. interesting thing as well. Yeah, it sounds like it can get kind of quite messy. Um, do you yeah. think with, like, you know, technology as it evolves, especially with, you know, blockchain and, you know, there being almost like a ledger where it's like undisputed, um, you know, like for, and I don't think we're quite there yet, but for like a song, just like if the writers agree on the percentage split that that could like help this process where it's just like very clearly there. Um, and, and perhaps like once the song is like streamed, uh, you know, the, the royalties are distributed like, you know, correctly through like the computers do you think, um, you know, and, I, and, I, and again, I think we're still kind of like trying to figure out how to like leverage this te- technology in the best way, but also make sure that it's, you know, fair and that whatever is inputted there is correct. You know, are, are you kind of like familiar with this tech and uh, maybe what it could do for like solving like this, this mess a little bit with your royalties and being able to make sure that the writers and the samples and the right credits go to the right people? Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like I've, I'm sure like more senior people at Cobalt have been all over this, but I think it's hard to solve the problem of people don't agree on what it is. Like at, from the inception of like the creation, if there's a disagreement, you can't really solve that with tech. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's YouTube is doing a lot like, from what I had experience with where they, they, you can um, have like the whole content ID thing where it will automatically, uh, if it can like listen to the song and then if there's an upload that uses it or maybe doesn't even use the recording and it's like someone singing a cover, it will like bring up like a possible match as like, okay, that's a, that's a UGC, a user generated content. So, the owner, the copyright owner can now place correctly place an ad on that and collect money from that UGC video. Like there's, there's a lot of tech around that, which is interesting. Um, yeah. And, and I know there's people specifically at labels who's like, I, I had a friend whose job was to like, well, I think that technology is like evolved since then, but a few years ago he would like go and like scour YouTube and other sites to, you know, ensure there's no kind of, copyright infringement and then on behalf of the label kind of like slap them with a you know warning um so yeah. that, that's interesting that youtube is kind of now you know leveraging the content id and and uh you know probably some sort of ai to like help with that but it sounds like from what you're saying though really the issue is more around you know when you're in the studio just like collectively agreeing you know the the contribution like percentage or input you know from each individual there and that can be kind of like a tough thing to come to agreement with, you know, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but really, I think it's like a matter of kind of, uh, you know, quote unquote, solving that if, you know, it can be solved. But that's probably more like the, you know, what needs to be worked on versus like, you know, the, the middlemen like collecting the royalties. 
Uh, yeah. And, in, yeah. In Nashville, everything is split evenly. Like if you're doing uh, a country song, if you write a song in Nashville, that's just the way they do it. Oh, interesting. interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So wait, so what do you mean by that? So everyone in the room gets like, you know, for example, like an even split? Yep. Automatically? Yeah. Like huh. they recognize that this is going to be a problem and just the culture with writers in Nashville or like country artists, country songwriters is they just split everything evenly. Do you like that? Do you think that's like a, a good solve? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I, I guess I could see, all right, hey, this person was in a room. I guess maybe they offset it by like, you can't, you literally like, you can't be in the room. Sorry. <laughs> you're like, even if you're like the assistant, like, sorry. <laughs> but I think people maybe just go into it with that. And so that's always interesting. It was always, I worked on like some, some you know, country catalogs and stuff and that was always way easier because so i was like all right no we're good there's not going to be disputes everything everyone agrees it's all even like no worries interesting yeah uh, i didn't know that uh cool so uh alex i want to shift gears a little bit because uh, right now you are the co-founder co-ceo of burwood media um which one thing i love about the name is burwood is from I think the street, uh, you know, you grew up in. Yeah, Burwood Park. You guys Park. grew up in. Yeah, Bird Park. Yeah, it was a neighborhood in um, in the UK where we grew up together. Yeah. Uh, which is really cool. But tell me about how, uh, you know, that whole business got started. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, just tell me that story. And also to bring it back, Burwood Park is also where Kyle and I lived. He was my next door neighbor. <laughs> oh, there you well, go. Yeah. To bring it back to the beginning. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like, um, basically, you know, Ethan and I, we've always been, you know, best friends, loving email music, having parties. Um, and you know, we, we love, we, we were in New York together and we just loved like playing email. We used to have like the best pregames ever, um, you know, just drinking and, listening to TBS and doing all that. And, uh, and then one day, um, you know, we wanted to just like, all right, well, let's just try this out, like at a bar. And so there was a bar actually across the street from my apartment called Cameo, um, which now is out of business, unfortunately. And I kind of just was like, Hey, like, could we just like do like DJ email music down like in the basement? Um, would you be cool with that? It's like a hundred person and like, we could bring our friends. We don't need to be paid. Like, is that all right? And they were like, yeah, no problem. And, um, and so, yeah, we kind of like just put, put it on Facebook. Um, this first one, this was in like, we kind of launched it in like November, December of 2014. And then January 2015 was the first show. And it was just all we wanted was just to, um, you know, get some free beers and party with our friends. And it turned out to be like out the door wine, completely packed, best night of my life, just in like a 100 person capacity venue, totally for free. Um, and then, you know, the venue was like, oh my God, like this is amazing. We have a 250 capacity venue in, you know, in the upstairs. Um, do you want to do it there? We ended up doing it there. 
that uh, it was another like massive show. We ended up Brooklyn Bowl, like which down the street was like an 800 cap kind of got uh, interested in in doing a show. We did a show there, sold out. All right, this is the thing, you know, at that point. And so, um, yeah, and then we just kind of we just started doing shows everywhere. We expanded. We got guests involved. We like Ryan Key from Yellowcard, like our hero, was like guest DJing, and uh, we kind of built it into a big. Uh, you know, a, a business, and then, then you know, in the last few years, we branched out into other genres and tried to, you know, basically replicate the formula of Emo Night Brooklyn, but for other genres, for different audiences, and um, yeah, it's just grown and grown and grown every year. COVID obviously completely shut us down for 16 months, 18 months, um, and then now we we've been back since like July 2021, and um, yeah, now it's like a real business. We have, you know, employees and, um, we went, Ethan and I went full time in, in April. So it's been awesome. Uh, give me some of the numbers of the shows you guys are doing now. Cause some, some weekends you guys are doing like, what, what, like five, six, like seven shows. Um, or like yeah. how many are you doing per year? Just give me some of the, you know, going from like the small a hundred, cap you know party to like now seven or eight years later uh what yeah what are you guys doing sure yeah yeah i mean like i feel like 2017 we were like dude we did 40 shows this year i can't believe we did that that's wild and then 2019 we did like almost 200 shows which was like mind-blowing we went from 40 shows in 2017 to 2019, almost 200 shows, which that was crazy. And then 2021, which was basically just a half a year, and even July, we were still kind of getting up and running. We did 200 shows in a half a year. So that's like, you know, if you compare the half a year of 2019 to the half a year of 2021, it's double. Now going into 2022, we were like, all right. It's all hands on deck. Like, this is legit. We've been waiting for this for a long time. And um, we're going to do, like, over 800 shows this year. We've already done, like, almost 600. Um, so the growth has been, like – and that's really the how to grow, really. It's just, like, how, much, how can we do more shows? So it's been Dude. a lot of growth, which is awesome. That's amazing, and I, and I'm so proud of you guys because uh, you really took something that we just love doing in our garage, uh, you know, when we were kids, just like rocking out, having fun, and you took that passion and channeled it, you know, it, it, into a business. Um, but not only that, like you're creating like some super fun, memorable, nostalgic experiences for like thousands of other people across the country. Uh, and also, you guys have done shows internationally, right? In the UK and I think Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm so proud of you guys. Like, it's so cool just following, like, this journey. Uh, I, I want to ask you, though, like, about the logistics of this. Because doing 800 shows a year, is, you know, according to my math, that's almost, like, three times the, you know, amount of days we have in a year. Um, how do you, like operate that how do you even manage like you know all the different djs doing the shows and like you're running like you know paid ads to ensure you sell tickets for the shows 
how is that possible? How do you guys do even manage that? Yeah. And I think like for me, like working at Cobalt definitely helped me because it, I got so much experience kind of like almost working for a tech company. They're very tech oriented and especially mm. on the ops, like, like basically the, the, the song is delivered, you enter it, it generates a unique ID and then it goes through all these various checks. It's, it's sent to the source. Has it been sent? Check. Has it been sent within a certain time frame? Has it been, has the source acknowledged receipt? Okay. And now can you check that it's actually listed? Check. And there's like a whole team that's involved with doing all this checks. Okay. Now has money come in? Well, why not? Well, what happened? What happened along the way that we missed that now we haven't received money by the time that we should have. And it's just this whole operational aspect was really interesting. The way they have everything set up this, they, you know, I got really involved in data analytics and, um, you know, database management and all that kind of thing. And I basically replicated that for what we do, even though it's a different business, I've replicated the whole thing. So we, you know, we have this massive database that's basically like a CRM for all of our venues, all of our, um, all of our venue information, all of our show information. So once you enter the show into our system, it, everything moves forward almost automatically. The artwork is automatically generated and localized via the pressing of a button. There's no Photoshop involved. Uh, it automatically, we have emails that, that get sent to the venues delivering the information automatically without anyone having to like logging the Gmail. We have checks to, to check, has it been delivered? I mean, there's like a good jillion things I could say, but it's all very tech oriented and everything is just like, it's just a checklist. It's just complete like automated check, check, has it been done? If not this, and here's all of our data all in one place. We can see all of our sales, all of our current sales. And yes, I think having that kind of established base has allowed us to grow because now we're like, okay, cool. It's not every individual show. Like we're like, yep, go, 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 go. It's a machine basically now. So that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you're essentially <laughs> describing like, you know, SOP is like just implementing standard operating procedures where it's just very clearly a step by step, you know, process of like once this is done, okay, now we can move forward to like the next step and ensuring that nothing is missed. And essentially you have then a very tight pipeline to make sure that nothing is being missed and then just essentially scaling that and replicating it for, uh, yeah, the different, you know, parties or events because now you guys have different theme nights, right? Where it's not just yeah. Human Night Brooklyn, but you have uh, Gimme Gimme Disco um, and Gasolina, which like just started. So yeah, actually tell me a little bit about that, like the different types of, uh, you know, genres and parties that you do because I think it's really clever that you kind of took the model for Emo Night Brooklyn and then applied it, you know, and essentially replicated it. And also I know that, you know, s some of those, uh, kind of other parties and maybe quite like work out, um, but you're finding the ones that are. So just tell me a little bit about that process and like how, you know, that's working. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so I guess like our hypothesis when we were kind of looking ahead in like 2016, 2017 was like, let's like replicate this model for Emonite Brooklyn, but do it like, like people that follow Emonite Brooklyn would have no idea that you also do this on the side. Let's build a completely different audience. Um, and if we do that successfully, if we can make another Emonite Brooklyn, but for a different audience, we'll double the revenue of the business, like quickly. Like that's the fastest way. Cause like, dude, we're doing amazing now, but if we had another Emonite Brooklyn, we'd be doing like wildly amazing. And, and you know, they're not going to conflict with each other. We could potentially like from an operational standpoint, we could send one DJ to do two House of Blues San Diego's from Friday to Saturday, and we could do two shows, and they wouldn't conflict. We'd be looking at two, we'd be advertising to two completely different audiences, and that's amazing. Versus like now, we have to do, we have to plan it out. So if we're sending one person to San Diego, we need another show like around LA or something, kind of like a band has to do it. We couldn't necessarily just do two nights in the same city. So that was our hypothesis, and like it actually, and it, yeah, there was trial and error. We tried a bunch of different things. Some of it didn't work. We landed on Gimme Gimme Disco, which like was our first like huge success beyond Emo Night Brooklyn and uh, Best Night Ever, and now Gasolina, and and yeah, so it's kind of it's really worked out that we have a lot of different, um, you know, separate parties and almost separate businesses in a way, separate websites, social media but it's all operationally under the same roof and it just allows us to do as many, so many more shows and but just grow the business a ton more. I think that's so smart. Uh, just doing that. And yeah, it allows you to like almost like expand, uh, you know, as much as you want. Cause you can just, you know, tap into different genres and different audiences and I remember going to like the Gimme Gimme Disco show too, and like the feeling was like so different than Emo Night Brooklyn. Like you know, it was a younger audience is is skewed more female. Uh, obviously, like you know, the way everyone dresses was completely different. The vibe, uh, but it is really like a ton of fun. You, you know, even for me too. I remember we dressed up, you know, and in like seventies gear. Oh yeah, it, it was great, man. Um, yeah. So. I, I love that you guys are doing that and that mm -hmm. it's like expanding. Um, here, I'll get I'll give you a little uh, you know bit of an opportunity to plug. Where can people like find the the different like you know parties if they're interested in, um, or can you just I guess like you know shout out the the ones that you guys are operating now, um, and where people could you know potentially attend if they wanted to. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess one place is BurwoodMedia.com. That's like our umbrella business is Furwood Media. And we have, if you go there, you'll find everything, every individual party, all the individual websites. So that's kind of the basis. Uh, but then, you know, just check us out on our social, Emo Night Brooklyn, uh, Gimme Gimme Disco, Best Night Ever Party, um, Gasolina. We've now started a couple new uh, kind of like smaller parties that we're really interested in growing. One of them is a musical theater based uh, party Broadway night kind of thing. Uh, it's called Defying Gravity. Um, and we have an Instagram and a TikTok. 
Um, and then we have a couple others. We have called Gimme Gimme Dolly, which is like a country-based uh, dance party. Um, and then we just started a new wave party. Um, so like think like Blondie, Duran Duran, The Cure, The Smiths. Um, and it's called Take On Me, and we're doing that. Our first show is in New York at this venue called Baby's All Right. So we're pretty pumped about that as well. So a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, Burwood spelled, by the way, B-U-R-W-O-O-D. So um, if anyone listening or watching, if you want to look it up, uh, that's how you spell it. Check it out. Um, and, yeah, you guys are constantly touring, like, you know, a- across the country and, like, all different cities. So I think wherever you are, the chances are that you can find, you know, one of these parties and, and just go party. And, and the ticket price is so reasonable, dude, for like such a fun night with your friends. Yeah. Like 12 bucks, 15 bucks. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I, I, every time I go, I just see like excitement from people there just having like the time of their life with their friends. Um, and it, yeah, it's such a fun like experience. Uh, Alex, I want to kind of, uh, you know, bring it a little bit back to music real quick and then we can wrap it up. Uh, what, what is like your favorite song like right now that's like playing, uh, you know, in rotation? Like, let's say if you were to, you know, uh, jump out and go to the gym or, uh, you know, just what's kind of your go-to right now song that you're like really listening to a lot? That's a good question. Um, Tadeshi Trucks just put out a new album. And I forget the name of the songs. I've just been getting into it, but like, I, I can already tell that the new album is like so good. And it's just pure, like, just pure raw instruments. Um, just amazing vocals, like one of the best guitar players uh, to ever, like, of the modern era. Um, so, yeah, I definitely check that out. That's that's I've been listening to that a ton. So, could you sorry? Could you repeat the name of the the artist? Tadashi Trucks. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's like Derek Trucks is the guitar player. And uh, yeah, the band name is Tadashi Trucks. Have you you haven't heard of them? Uh, I I have. It, it just it just cut out in my headphones for a minute, so I didn't oh, get okay. like the. I just no heard problem. like trucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. So and and I know you know I mentioned this earlier, but I think one of our you know mutual artists uh, or the artist that we just like both really really love is John Mayer. Um, it, you know for so many reasons. Uh, and I know this is like a really hard question but what would you say is probably like your your favorite john mayer song and why um uh that's a good question i mean there are so many gravity of course just like what really got me into john mayer was like live in los angeles um so yeah, I'm, it might be it might be Gravity because like that live in Los Angeles, the solo on Gravity was just like completely life changing, for sure. So I I might just go with that, even though it's a bit cliche, but whatever. 
Queen of California as well. That's like, I love that song. Love it. Uh, what is it about Gravity? So it's like the solo that, you know, uh, from Where the Light Is, right? His live performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was from, yeah. from like 2007. Dude, like for me, I think growing up, I always thought of soloing as like academic. It's like I'm more mm. of a chugger. Like I'm more metal and like emo and power chords. And like, I learned how to solo just for the purpose of like being in jazz band or like, I like learned this piece to like my audition song for Berkeley, but I was never like a soloer before. But when I like, when I got into and I was always kind of a hater on John Mayer, like all through high school, I kind of like thought he was like Jack Johnson. Like, I don't know, in a way I was like, it's kind of lame. Uh, but when I saw the live in Los Angeles DVD, I was like, wow, like, this is, like, cool soloing. Like, this actually is cool. This isn't, like, just, like, the jazz band type, <laughs> you know? So that that completely, like, changed my life um, and just got me into, like, blues and, like, you know, led me down a completely kind of different musical path and opened my eyes so much from, like, just kind of the box that I was in of just, like, emo stuff. You know, so, and like, that's been so amazing. Just so, just keep going back to guitar and learning new stuff and getting better and just vibing and feeling, you know, soloing and doing all that. Like, it's all because of John Mayer, like, really. So, Jam's the man. Uh, Speaking of like jazz band and like kind of live playing, live soloing, I think I really realize you're an incredible guitarist when in our high school. Uh, the jazz band would do kind of this live thing where uh, you all would play in the like hall um, throughout the day, like the whole day. And all of you guys were like improving for like hours on hours and hours. And I remember walking by in between classes and you were just there like, go, you know, hammering away. And if like there's a key <laughs> change or like something would change, you would like keep up like no problem. And I was like, wow, that's like you have to be quite talented to just really kind of go with the flow. And then of course, like later I learned more about jazz and that's like such a quintessential part of, you know, being part of any, I think jazz group is to really go with the flow of like the rest of the band. You have to be very in tune with where the drummer is and the bassist and, um, and really be able to adapt and not like take over too much. And, you know, each kind of musician at some points have their own solo but the other thing I super admired about you, in addition to that, was your ability to listen to music or a song, even just for like a few seconds, and then be able to like replicate that on guitar. You know exactly like the right notes and like the key. And I th- and I'm just like so in awe of people who can do that. Can you like tell me how the hell you do that? Like, how do you listen to something and just? so easily translate it to like your guitar even like vocal like melody lines you're like oh yeah it's it's this like what's going on in your brain where you have the like ability to do that um i feel like it's really like just probably practice like i definitely have gone through multiple periods like my senior year of high school or you know um periods like more recently where i just like play like for hours and hours and hours and just play along with stuff and then once you just like 
sit and like play an album and just play along with it, you really start to learn like, all right, what's this doing? What's, and it's just becomes like a natural, you know, uh, you know, your own kind of muscle memory. Uh, and then it's just, and then it's, it's just practicing and continuing and not, not giving up and just keep showing up every day to practice, practice, practice. I have, I'm not in one of those phases right now, which is kind of sad, but I hope to do it again soon. So it's really the, almost like the 10,000 hours. Like you do something like so much, there's no way you can't like get good at it and almost like be intuitive to it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Um, all right, Alex, I, I kind of usually end most podcasts with this question. Uh, and it's slightly unrelated to what, you know, I've been asking before, but I just, I, I love kind of hearing different answers from people um, on this. And it's, uh, maybe a bit of a cliche question, but um, you know, I'm always curious. What do you think the meaning of life is? And in addition to that, what do you think uh, your purpose is? You know, within this life too. Um. Yeah, I, that's that's a tough one. I think the meaning of life, no one knows. And maybe there's just some comfort in you no know, one knows the meaning and, you know, we're all just walking around and anyone who claims to have it does not. <laughs> um, and so maybe just like there's comedy in that, isn't it? It's like you, you, you can just, you just have to live day by day. And I think, I think, um, move oh, move with what you're passionate about as well like i think that's very important like you know i think there are so many times when i in my life have gone through more of the untraditional route and um if you can succeed in something that other people think you won't then there's a bigger payoff because it's something that's hard, must innately be hard to succeed in. And so there's a much bigger reward. And um, you, it's also just, you, once you know it's possible, then the, the sky's the limit. So yeah, I think, um, yeah, just following your passions, not, you know, being moved by just tradition um, is important. And so that's kind of how I kind of try to, that's what I go by for the most part. Wise words from Alex Bidanes. <laughs> you heard it here. Uh, dude, thank you so much for, uh, you know, sitting down with me and, and chatting and catching up. Uh, and any, any kind of last, you, you just get, you know, loaded us with a ton of, uh, you know, good wisdom there. But any, any kind of last words, like any projects that you're working on now, or things people should look out for uh, from Alex Bedanes in the near future? Um, I don't think so. I think, um, yeah, just come out to one of our shows, check us out on social media. Um, and, dude, I'm pumped for you as well. So, um, you know, congrats again on the podcast. I'm pumped to listen. Awesome. 
right, guys, thank you so much for watching and listening, and we will see you in the next episode.